Chapel, Mason City. Amen. Do you believe uh, that you have to do good things to be loved and accepted by God instead of just accepting his love through Jesus Christ? You wouldn't be, you may be surprised of how many people have a hard time shaking this notion that good works have to be done in order to earn God's love and to earn salvation. This is a hard thing for a lot of Christians uh, to understand. This idea was making its way into the church at Colossae. Now, the point of today's message is since God provides all we need for salvation and spiritual maturity, we do not need to believe that any other wisdom or works are required. So I'll say that again. Since God provides everything we need for salvation and spiritual maturity, we don't need to believe that any other wisdom or works are required. And that's the main point of what he's going to get at here today. And he starts off with a warning. He says, beware. That's the first word in verse eight there. He starts out with a warning, beware lest anyone cheat you. Now, this is what false teachers do is they rob you of salvation. They rob you of security. And that's what they were doing in the Colossian church. And he says, beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit. He starts out saying, beware. He's giving the warning signs. Imagine yourself as a young hiker. You're eager to explore the great outdoors. You set off on a hike on a beautiful day without the proper gear or supplies. You ignore the warning signs of the weather forecast and the advice of experienced hikers telling you to bring enough food and water and clothing for potential conditions. You're convinced that you can handle it, but soon find yourself stranded, lost, fighting for your life against the elements, trapped under a boulder with no help in sight. You start staring at the reality of death. And you have to make a decision that'll change your life forever. You have to amputate your own arm to survive. This is the true story of Aaron Ralston a hiker who in 2003 ignored warning signs, set off on a solo hike in a canyon in Utah and was trapped under a boulder and had to make the unimaginable decision to amputate his own arm to get free. The importance of heeding the warnings, right? And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in the Colossian church, which serves as a warning for us. Beware lest false teachers cheat you and rob you of what Jesus wants to do in your life. Far worse consequences than having to rob your, you know, to cut your arm off. He says, warning about philosophy and empty deceit. Now, the word philosophy here just simply means in the Greek, the love of wisdom. And this should not be understood as we understand the word philosophy. Today, when you go to college, you take a philosophy course and, and it might be helpful to study these guys, but this is the idea of man's attempt to explain the meaning of life apart from the knowledge of God. This is man's wisdom apart from the knowledge of God. That's what he means by philosophy here. There were those that were coming into the Colossian church and telling them they needed all kinds of these different, you know, forms of wisdom and all this different knowledge, but they didn't know Jesus. This was apart from Jesus. And that's what he's talking about here. You want to watch out for those that claim to know the meaning and purpose of life apart from God. 
Now that pretty much cleans out a lot of the books at the bookstore. <laughs> and he says, going on in verse eight, according to the tradition of men, that's what me, this is wisdom that comes from unsaved men and women. According to the basic principles of the world, it says going on, this has to do with the idea of like ABCs, right? And commentators debate a little bit what he means, but what I think is going on here is he's talking about the ABCs sort of of life, where he says, according to the basic principles of the world, one of the most basic principles of the world is cause and effect, right? And a lot of people have that idea about God, this cause and effect idea about God. That, like, it kind of sounds like this. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. It's kind of like the idea of karma. You know what karma is, right? Like kind of what goes around, comes around. Karma is a little different because you're trying to store up a bunch of good karma so when you're reincarnated, you can come back in a better level of life. That's what reincarnation and karma are about. But this is what he's getting at here, I believe, is this basic stuff. He's saying, Colossians, don't get duped into this very basic ABC understanding of God where, like, if you're bad, he's mean. And if you're good, he's good. See, grace really challenges that whole idea, doesn't it? Because, see, God gives grace to the undeserving, right? If you get what you give when it comes to God, all of us, if we got what we deserved, we would just get eternal death in hell. We would just be punished eternally because we've dishonored God and broken his laws. But he gives us grace in Jesus Christ, which that challenges this whole notion of basic cause and effect. And that's what I think he's saying here. Watch out for this philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of you know, unsaved men, the wisdom of unsaved men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, so it starts off with a warning and now the rest of the message falls under the heading of how to heed that warning. So if verse eight was the warning, now nine through 15 is how to heed the warning. And there are a few things I'll point them out as we go. He says in verse uh, nine, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul says two things right away in verse nine. He says that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. So the false teachers coming in saying Jesus is not God, he's just an angelic being. You need to have all these other, you know, angels speaking to you and mediums and all this different stuff. Paul is saying, no, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, right? The Colossians, in other words, need not bother with teachings that diminish Christ in any way. Now, I want to add while we're here talking about diminishing Christ and not paying attention to teachings that diminish Christ and who he is. You have to know that Christian scientists, Mary Baker Eddy, there's a Christian science reading room over in Clear Lake. You've seen it. They deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, Jehovah's Witness deny the deity of Christ, right? And if you do your research, you find out that uh, Muslims deny the deity of Christ, that Mormons deny the deity of Christ and who Christ is. You have to understand these things. This is what Paul is warning about. And I think this is very poignant because in 2023, 
the church has adapted this attitude of like, man, can't we all just get along? And, you know, we should get along as neighbors. That's a good thing. If I have a neighbor that's a Jehovah's Witness, I'm going to shovel your walk if I have the opportunity. I'm going to try to love you and do things for you. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to abandon the truth. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to accept teachings that diminish the person and the deity of Jesus Christ. Because you start doing that, and it's kind of like this. It's kind of like saying, how do you get to Chicago? Hey, you take I-35 South and you just keep going. No, you don't. No, he goes on to say, you are complete in him. What a statement. You are whole in him. Now, it's not saying that we are God in the sense where Paul just said Jesus is God. He says, you are complete in him. John 1.16 says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. This is what he's talking about. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. One of my favorite books, the favorite section, that first chapter, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is what he's talking about. You're complete in him. Spurgeon gives the good definition of this. He says that we are complete without the need for legalism. We are complete without the need and help of philosophy. We are complete without the inventions of superstition. We are complete without human achievement. We are complete in him. Now, I'm going to come back to this point at the end of the message. So hold on to this. You are complete in him. And by the way, if you're a Bible highlighter, this is a good one, man. This is, some of the, this is some of the heights in the Bible right here. Like, you know, the, the peaks of the mountains. This is some of the heights of the Bible right here. Um, uh, Colossians in this particular section. If you're a highlighter, I would highlight that. You are complete in him, especially if you feel empty at times because the Bible would say otherwise. Who is the head of all principality and power. Now, as we go on through this letter, you're going to see that the Colossians had a, you know, an unhealthy fascination with angels. They worshiped angels and, uh, you know, they went to angel readings. No, I don't know if they did that. Uh, that's a foolish new age occult practice, by the way, um, which they do around town sometimes. You ever see that angel readings? Yeah. It's, it's like originates from the new age and it's an occult sort of practice, but <laughs> some of the Colossians were obsessed with angels and what Paul is saying here now is Jesus is the head of all principality and power. Now, anybody that is taken up with Jesus, I don't need to be taken up with angels and any of the other stuff. It doesn't really matter. I'm taken up with Jesus, who is the head of all these things, right? And that's what he's telling the Colossians. You're complete. You don't need to get tripped up into all this other stuff that's trying to come for your attention and come for your heart in this world. Isn't this book like completely relevant to 2023? This is so relevant, especially the advent of like social media, right? You sit there on social media and you, you flip through like Instagram reels and like uh, YouTube shorts and all this different stuff. And there are so many people coming with philosophies, trying to tell you what life is about, especially you young people. You've got all these influencers trying to tell you what life is about. And you look at the fruit of their life and they're totally unhealthy people, you know, and it's like they're wanting to commit suicide and they're cutting themselves and they're doing all this other stuff. You say, there's all these philosophies in the world, people trying to tell me what's right all the time. And, you know, praise God, what Paul is saying to all of us as Christians is, man, you don't need to mess with that stuff. You've got everything that's so much higher, so much above all that stuff in Christ. 
You're complete in Christ. Now, next, Paul turns to the error of, you know, from the error, he was talking about godless philosophy there. And now he's going to turn to the error of legalism. Now, if you don't know what legalism is, let me give you a definition. Because there are many Christians that are plagued with this false teaching. Even though they claim the name of Christ, they're still confused about this. What legalism is, is it is a belief that salvation or spiritual maturity can be achieved by following a set of strict rules rather than by simple faith in Jesus Christ. It's people that think they can get saved or become spiritually mature by following rules. Backing up a little bit, doesn't this seem like the basic principles of the world, right? Like we were talking about, like God's just kind of like a soda machine. And if I put the right coin in and push the right button, I get the right response. Now there are people that see God like that. They think he's up there. And if I go to church, that's like pushing the right button. And if I give some money and if I read the Bible, I'm pushing all these buttons and I'm getting out salvation is the, is the can of soda, right? And there are people that view God like that. That's what legalism is. There are people that have a legal relationship with God in this sense. They believe that salvation is earned by doing works or that spiritual maturity comes by following codes of rules. It's a way of trying to earn salvation or righteousness apart from the faith um, it, just having faith in Christ. So here's some things you have to know if you don't want to get led astray, if you want to heed this warning. The first thing is, is know that you are circumcised in Christ. Now, some of you ladies are like, what? Men and women, you need to know that you are circumcised in Christ. He says in verse 11, in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, the false teachers came into the church in Colossae and they said that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Where did they get that from? Right? Well, you might say the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Actually, it predates the law of Moses. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17. And here's what it says. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, God says to Abraham and to the Jews that were with him. It's a sign of the covenant between God and the Jews, right? And it's cutting off the foreskin. Do you know what that is? It's a surgical procedure where they cut the foreskin off of a penis, okay? And now Jews still do it today as for spiritual religious reasons. And a lot of people do it just for hygienic reasons. I mean, it's, you know, it's a common thing. It's a surgical procedure that's done. It predates the law of Moses. What did it symbolize though? This is... A lot of people, you know, want to know what are the symbols behind these things, right? Circumcision symbolized man's need for the cleansing of his heart. Men and women. It symbolizes being cut off from the sinful life of the flesh, Right? It's, it's a surgical procedure on the place where like life comes from. And it is a very graphic way to symbolize being cut off from the control of the old sinful flesh. When the false teachers came into the church and said, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. 
Paul is responding to them here saying, no, you really don't know what circumcision even means if you think that. He goes on to say, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Do you see that there? You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. It was made without hands in the sense that this was done spiritually by Christ. Goes on to say, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the working of God who raised him from the dead. So false teachers are saying you need to be circumcised and you need to be baptized or else you can't be saved. Paul's saying, no, no, no. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? It's the cross. It's where Christ's life was cut off. Because Christ's life was cut off on the cross, through your faith in him, spiritually, your old sinful dead life has been cut off as well. And that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on to talk about baptism. And what baptism does is it symbolizes what happened with the circumcision. Romans chapter six, verse six says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The circumcision symbolizes, you know, your old sinful life being cut off. And then baptism is an illustration of it. You see, you're going under the water and that is symbolic of death, right? Now, when you come up out of the water, that's symbolic of the new life in Christ. Have you read 2 Corinthians where it says, um, the old has passed away. I'm a new creation in Christ. This is what he's talking about. Circumcision is a picture of this death to the old self, which Christ accomplished on the cross. And it's a picture of uh, that new life that comes. You're going down the water, you're buried, you're dead, and you're coming up out of the water. Now, he's saying then to the Colossian church, you don't need to be physically circumcised for salvation. You need spiritual circumcision, which the sinful flesh life that you're born into in Adam, in the Garden of Eden, you're born with his sin. That needs to be done in a person's life. Without this spiritual circumcision taking place in somebody's life, they're not going to heaven. I was listening to a guy talk the other day about how people have been convinced that they are going to heaven because they've made a decision for Christ, right? A decision, you know, it might be, you know, just semantics and everything. And he's talking about, you know, you're choosing to follow Jesus, but what really makes it to where you're going to heaven is surgically, spiritually, your old self was put to death through faith in what Jesus did at the cross. And you're living a new life. You're a new creation with new life inside of you. That has to happen. A person has to go from spiritually dead to becoming spiritually alive or else you don't go to heaven. You're not born again at that point. 
So you can imagine when false teachers come in and they say, oh, no, you got to keep the law of Moses, man. You got to get circumcised. You got to get baptized. There are Christian denominations today that teach that you need to be baptized in order for salvation. Paul would say, no, no, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of a spiritual reality. Then to verse 12 there, it says, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It's because of our faith in Jesus that this spiritual death to the old self and this new life comes. It's through the power of God that comes into our life through faith in Jesus. It's not through doing works. Now, so the first thing you have to know if you want to heed this warning where Paul is saying you've got to watch out for false teachers coming into your church, trying to trap you with philosophy and legalism. He says the first thing you've got to know is you have been circumcised in Christ. The moment you said yes to Jesus Christ, right? Sorry for the sound effect. It's probably inappropriate. But the moment you said yes to Jesus Christ, you know, that was it. You were, your old life was done. You're crucified with Christ. It's no longer you that live, but Christ that lives in you. That's a one-time thing that happened the second that you received Jesus, right? And the baptism symbolizes it. Another comment on baptism before we go forward. Can you see why it's important for a believer to get baptized and why it really, I mean, I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody that was baptized as a baby. I mean, I was too, but the picture of baptism makes no sense for a baby because it symbolizes a person placing their faith in Jesus Christ and being buried to the old life and alive in Christ. So it doesn't make any sense. It's not some superstitious thing that automatically saves, it's not magical water, right? It's a symbol. Now, So the first thing you have to know if you want to heed this warning is you've already been circumcised in Christ. The old life is gone. The new life has come. Nobody can lead you away saying you need to do works to make it better or or to try to achieve it. It's already been done in Christ. Now, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together. This is the next point. You have to know that you are free from the law in Christ, okay? Notice what he says there. And you being dead in your trespasses and sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. This is the state that you were in before you were born again. If you have not been born again, you are still in this state. You are dead in your trespasses. And see how the word goes with it? The uncircumcision of your flesh. You haven't been cut off. Your old, dead, sinful life hasn't been cut off. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, this is what he's getting at. This is the state of everybody that's outside of Christ. And forgive me for the real harsh statement, but not just people that have given lip service to the whole thing, people that have been really born again, truly, the work that God's done in them, they're the ones that are no longer dead in their trespasses and sins, right? When you have relatives that are not Christians, when you have friends that are not Christians and neighbors, this is the state that they're in. You say, I have some loved ones that just don't want anything to do with church. You know, they're not really interested in this whole thing. Well, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, most likely. And so God has, they have to be born again, right? They have to give their life and trust in Jesus. And then this spiritual operation happens and they go from life to death. And that's what he says to the Colossians. You, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. 
God comes into the life of the sinner and makes the sinner come alive. Now, that's a very important statement there. He has made alive. It doesn't have to do with human merit. You didn't make yourself alive by deciding you were going to clean up your life and go to church. You know, you didn't decide that you're going to come alive by, you know, be, becoming a good person. It doesn't work like that. He makes people alive, right? He takes the spiritually dead and he makes them come back to life. How did he do it? Having forgiven you all trespasses. All of your sins are what separated you from God. But Christ dying on the cross forgives all your trespasses. You see, the penalty that you deserve for your sin, for my sin, Christ took upon himself forgiving us all of our trespasses. I almost just want to take a break and let this set in for a second, right? This is heavy. This is the best news in the Bible. That a sinner, that a, that a pers person with, you know, a wicked heart can be forgiven. A spiritually dead person with nothing but intentions to please themselves that uses everything to meet their own needs in life. That a person that chooses to run from God can be brought near to God to be brought to life, to be forgiven of all of their sins, all the things they've done to hurt people, all the things they've done against God, all the offenses that we can be forgiven. He says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't cut off yet. You hadn't been through the spiritual circumcision yet, but he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven all your trespasses. Now he goes on and he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Now, what does he mean by that? Where he says wiped out, it's an interesting word in the Greek. See, I was with a guy yesterday that didn't have his hearing aids and he couldn't talk or hear. I mean, he could talk maybe, but he couldn't hear because he didn't have his hearing aids. And so they brought him in a whiteboard. Uh, the nurse thought it was smart to, you know, do that. And good idea. And so you'd write on it, hey, how you doing? And then you'd wipe it away. The Greek word here is more than just that. It's wiping it away, but then whitewashing it to where it's like there was no evidence that any writing was ever there. This whiteboard, you could almost see what the last person wrote. It was so worn out. You've seen those? But, but this has to do with wiping it away and then whitewashing over it to where there's like no evidence of it. And this is what happened. It was wiped away with no evidence out of the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He's talking about the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Why would he describe the Ten Commandments as being against us? Now, if you haven't ever grabbed a hold of this in life, this is going to be life-changing. See, a lot of people look at the Ten Commandments as a list of things to do 
and hopefully make God pleased with them. It's almost like you go to the door at the club and they say, what's the password? And if you don't know the password, you don't get in, right? It's almost like people view the 10 commandments like that. Like, here's the way to get to heaven. Do these 10 things. Oh, okay, well, fine, I'll do them. And then they think that it's like, you know, you keep the handwriting of requirements, you keep these, and if you do a good enough job at it, then God will, you know, let you on into heaven. And that's how people view the 10 commandments. Another way people view the 10 commandments is they say, look, if I keep these things, God will love me, but otherwise he hates me. That's a misunderstanding of the 10 commandments. That's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. Do you, do you guys, does anybody ever struggle with this? Did you ever approach God like this? I spent years approaching God like this. It was crippling. Because you can't do it. That's the whole thing about the Ten Commandments is like, it re, it's God's way of showing all of humanity, A, what his perfect standard is and what he is like, and B, you can't do it. That's, that's what the law shows us. That's what the Ten Commandments shows us. It's a list of good things. The Ten Commandments are great things. Can you imagine a world where nobody lied and lusted after their neighbor's wife and all this stuff? Can you imagine a world like that? Uh, well, that'll be heaven one day. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. But sinful humans like you and me, the Ten Commandments are against us. And they're contrary to us. Why? Because you can't keep them. Now, a legalist doesn't get it. They say, okay, I keep seven of them, but you only keep five. Ha <laughs> ha! I'm going to hang around with you so I always feel better about myself. <laughs> God's given me a 70%. If I think if I get a D, I can probably get into heaven with that, right? And that's how a legalist looks at it. A legalist thinks God graves on the curve. Well, I'm doing pretty good at this, you know what I mean? I get like 80%. You know, God probably loves me better than he loves these stinking Gentiles. Right? And that's how the legalist viewed the Ten Commandments. Here's the appropriate way to view the Ten Commandments. Let me just, okay. Have you ever told a lie? You ever stolen anything? You ever had sinful anger? You ever like totally, totally wanted something that somebody else has that's called coveting? You ever taken the Lord's name in vain? In other words, claimed to follow Jesus, but then didn't do it? That's taken the Lord's name in vain. You took it for no reason. You ever done any of those things? Every single one of us in this room has done all those things repeatedly. Now, the proper response is me saying, I'm done, man. I need a savior. Then God would say, good. Glad that you get it. Because here's some really improper grammar. Don't nobody get into heaven without realizing that you're a broke, busted sinner that needs a savior. You don't get in. Now, when I read those 10 commandments, I look at them today and I said, this is a good track to run on. Of course, I don't want to lie. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to steal. But thank God that entrance into heaven is not based on whether I can do these things or not. Entrance into heaven is, get this, based on the fact that Jesus did all those things perfectly. I get in because he did it perfectly. I can't do it perfectly. But because of my faith in him, God looks at me with the same perfect obedience as Jesus. That's beautiful. That's what he's saying right here. 
He's saying rather than having some legalistic church where you're trying to tell people if they don't keep the Ten Commandments, they're going to hell. He said, no, no, man. Jesus wiped this all out. He fulfilled all of this in his life. Jesus earned and deserves the perfect record. Now, by faith, God says, look, I'm willing to take your stinky bad record and I'm willing to put that on Christ on the cross. And I'm willing to take Christ's perfect record and put that on you. Now, that's what he says. Look it. Wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what he's talking about. That super long record of sin nailed to the cross. Now, you know what Romans did when you went to the cross? They took the offense and they wrote it and they put it on the cross and they nailed it. Remember when they nailed the thing above Jesus' head? Jesus took your whole big record of sin, took it upon himself. That's what Paul is saying. So how does this tie into the Old Testament law? Well, the Old Testament law continuously proves that I fall short. Continuously. But since Christ has fulfilled it all perfectly, and I have his record, he's wiped out that whole long accusatory statement that shows every place Adam lied here, he lied here, he stole here, he cheated here, he coveted here. Christ says, give that all to me. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. Christianity is not about being a real good person, although Jesus will make you a good person. He will do it. It's about God coming and having mercy on sinners. Mercy. Not giving me what I deserve. He's taken it out of the way. He's nailed it to the cross. And he disarmed principalities and powers all the demonic realm, Satan. He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. Think of a Roman general coming through the town, triumphing after he's won a battle and all of his enemies and he's vanquished thine enemies and he's going through uh, and he's made a public spectacle, triumphing over them. You say, why does the devil still harass me if this is true? Well, where it says disarmed, they no longer have the authority, the demons and the devil, to condemn you. Now they can harass you and they can accuse you. That's his game. And he can try to put fear into your life, but he's been disarmed. Remember Genesis chapter three, verse five, when God said to Eve that I will, um, you know, essentially paraphrasing, I'll send my son and, you know, he will come and you'll, um, you know, bruise his heel, but you'll bruise his head. You know, you'll give him the head blow predicting when the Messiah would come, destroy the devil. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. He totally destroyed him. Now, he doesn't give up. This is still a fallen, broken world, and he has, it hasn't been redeemed yet. And so there's still the power of the devil here at work, but he doesn't have the power to condemn you. You've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been given authority over the demonic realm in Christ. Remember what James says? When the devil harasses you, if you resist him, What? He'll flee from you. Exactly. You have authority over this. This is what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus at the cross, 
He took the whole bad record that you deserve by breaking God's Old Testament laws and he nailed it to himself and it's all fulfilled. And when he said, remember his last words on the cross? It is finished. What is finished? The whole Old Testament law, all of it. He fulfilled all of it. The picture of circumcision, the ritual of circumcision, it's all done in Christ because Christ's death on the cross is true circumcision. He was cut off from the land of the living and he gives new life. Baptism, it's fulfilled in Christ, right? Because you're, it's a picture of you going in to life with Christ and coming out in the new life with Christ, right? It's not required for salvation. It is required for obedience. Christ tells us to get baptized, to show the world uh, that we belong to him. And uh, Christ also institutes the Lord's Supper, but... He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. No, just in these few minutes that we have, I want to spend time. I told you that we would go back to this statement. This stuff is just so heavy, man. I wish we could just sit for like a month and think about all these things, you know, together. Let me address a question that comes up. If, if you're hearing me correctly and you're, you're hearing grace being preached that God saves you by grace through faith. It's not a result of the works that you do and all this stuff. The question will come to your mind where grace is preached. Are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? No, I'm not saying that at all whatsoever. I want to obey God because I trust him and I love him. Not just because he's useful to me. I want to keep God's laws. I want to be, I want to, I wish I could be perfectly obedient to him because he's a good master. Because he leads me in the way of righteousness. His ways are good. But I don't for one second do anything thinking that I'm earning his love or earning a better position in salvation or earning my salvation or earning spiritual maturity. I don't think I'm earning or meriting or achieving or deserving anything. I just do it because he loved me first and I love him. I'm here because I'm grateful. So yeah, it does matter how we live because I want to live in a way that honors Christ. Don't you? Here's a, here's a point of question today and I'm not trying to shame anybody or anything like that, but I mean, does, is this Christianity, is this your Christianity? Where, where the obedience comes in and it's because of love and gratitude? Are you here today because you love and are grateful for Jesus and, and because you trust him and you think that he's got, the, he's got it figured out. I want to follow him. Is that why you're here? Can you say today you love him? You know, if you haven't loved him yet, here's, here's the thing. I can't say, you've got to love Jesus. Let me, let, me, let me take the pressure off of you, okay? You might be sitting here saying today, I don't, I don't love Jesus. Well, let me take the pressure off of you. If you will get to know how much he loves you, you cannot help but fall in love with him. You just can't. How do we heed this warning? We need to know Jesus is God. We need to know we're complete in him. We need to know we're circumcised. We need to know what baptism symbolizes. We need to know the place of the law in the life of the believer. Now, I want to end thinking about this. You are complete in him. Being complete in Christ has several implications, okay? Uh, the first one I want to talk about is you're not lacking anything in a spiritual or moral aspect. You're not lacking anything. Now, isn't that good? Good news. The next one is we're no longer under the condemnation of sin. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for anybody that's in Christ. Another implication, it means that we're no longer slaves to sin. 
This new life inside of us gives us the power to obey Jesus and the desire to do so, right? Praise God. This means that we've been adopted into God's family. Like you think, well, I'm just an orphan. I ain't got a home and nobody loves me and, and I don't have people in life. And it's, well, you've been adopted into this massive family if you're a Christian. I mean, you, you've been, you can call God your father, whereas people that haven't come to Christ, can't, they can't say that. Now, this also means that we have the hope of eternal life that will be with Christ forever in heaven and with those that have gone before us that we love and care about that died in Christ. It means that we've been given the ability to access the wisdom of knowledge and knowledge of God in a way that we could not before. The wisdom that's not found in the wisdom of the world, but is found in him. This also means that we have a confidence and assurance of our salvation. The fullness of Christ also means that we can have peace and joy that's not dependent on our circumstances, but is dependent on our relationship with God. I'm going to take this one step further here as we close. How does this minister to the most common mental issues? Jesus is not disconnected from what you're going through in your life. Anxiety and worry. Massive problem in today's world. Um, Christ has a lot to offer this. Anxiety and worry. Knowing that we have everything that we need for salvation and, and spiritual maturity in Christ, it provides a sense of security and peace in our lives. Helps us to trust God in his plan and his sovereignty and provision rather than worrying about the future. You know, I'm going to say something real pointed today. If you've got anxiety and worry about the future, you don't trust that Jesus, that God is sovereign. You don't trust that. And now, if you don't know him very well, I don't blame that you can't trust him because you can't trust people you don't know, right? And so that's on you then. You want to get to know him more? You want less anxiety and less worry? Get to know Jesus more. It happens. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just... I'm a blunt person. I like the way it's given. When somebody just gives it to me, that's how I respond. That's, and so that's my, I'm not trying to be mean to you. Depression, right? Massive amount of people struggling with depression today. Listen, the hope of eternal life and the joy that comes with being a child of God can help lift the spirit of those who struggle with depression. It does with me. I used to fight depression before becoming a Christian. I haven't been depressed a day since and I used to be like manic, clinical, like bad. I haven't been depressed a day since being filled with Jesus, being filled with his spirit. Not one day in 14 years. I mean, I've had ups and downs. Don't get me wrong, but not depressed. Not like I was. These truths, there's power in this. How about this? Low self-esteem. Knowing that we are fully accepted and loved by God can help boost our self-esteem in a healthy way and our self-worth because I'm worth something because he made me and he has a purpose for my life beyond going and going to a job and making money and buying a house and going to a job and buying, a, you know, it's all this rat race garbage of just the same thing every day with a meaningless life. I feel like I've, I'm important. I'm important to Christ. He's given me something meaningful to do and you're important to him. Anger and bitterness, being full of Christ means that we have been forgiven and this can help us release anger and bitterness towards others and ourselves. Guilt and shame, knowing that we are fully justified and made right with God through faith in Christ can help us to release guilt and shame. The whole list of things wiped out. 
God sees you like that. I hope we can leave here today full of joy because we are complete in him. Now, if you want